Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. It is Monday. There are 15 days to go until the election. So we have a double-barreled show today. A little bit later on the program, we are going to be joined by A.B. Stoddard from Real Clear Politics, who has a great piece on the 10 known unknowns of the election. But we're going to start off with a somewhat unusual special guest. Joining us on today's Bulwark podcast is a man who is now known as Slayer Pete, the mayor, Mayor Pete Buttigieg. Thanks for joining us. How are you, sir? <laughs> Thanks for having me. I'm good. Nice to be with you. How are you feeling about the Slayer nickname, though? You know, uh, it's not how I think of myself when I get up in the morning, but, uh, you know, if that's my contribution to the cause, then, uh, uh, then I guess I'll take it. Well, let, let's talk about let's talk about where we're at now. Two weeks out from from the campaign, you are campaigning in the Midwest. You're in Michigan. You're going to be in my home state of Wisconsin. Yeah. How should we're we're in the throw everything at the screen phase of this campaign, including the fact right. that our home state senator Ron Johnson is is on Fox, um, spreading just b- bizarre. Q tinge conspiracy theories about Hunter Biden and Joe Biden. How should Joe Biden handle this kind of this this kind of attempted smear campaign? So to me, it's all about coming back to what's most on voters' minds, and especially in the Midwest, where where you and I come from, where I think people are very practically minded and more than anything, just want to know how their lives are going to be affected by the decisions that are going to be made. What's going to happen to your health care? What's going to happen to your taxes? And yeah, when these things uh, come up, especially when there's uh, you know a smear, you got to beat it back, but you got to beat it back quickly and then return to the most important questions, which are, you know, what's it going to take to get us out of this pandemic? What's it going to take to make sure everybody has health care? And, and that's turf that the, the Trump campaign doesn't seem to want to compete on which is why they'll, they'll keep uh, uh, trying to push it anywhere else, even if that means you know, resorting to digital dumpster diving in order to uh, try to change the subject. Well, this will come up in the debate later this week. So you, you, yeah. know, that, you know that um, this, is, this is going to be the 2020 version of Hillary's emails. It will be Hunter's laptop. Uh, there was a CBS reporter who asked uh, Joe Biden about this the other night, and Joe Biden kind of pushed back at him, kind of was portrayed as attacking the reporter. But I mean, he's going to have to say something about this, right? I mean, he's going to you know, either the laptop yeah. is real, it's not real, it's Russian disinformation. You know, he is going to have to answer this. Yeah, I think he can speak to it quickly, point to the the just total lack of credibility of the people who are pushing this stuff. Uh, and then come right back to home base. But, you know, obviously, you know, look, look, Trump specializes in finding and exploiting any human vulnerability in any human being that he's trying to uh, damage or destroy. And in this case, uh, the, the, what he sees as a vulnerability is that Joe Biden is a loving father. Uh, to me, that's a strength. It's one more sign of the contrast. And uh, it's an example of the decency that he has. Uh, and, you know, uh, anything substantive, he, he can uh, deal with it, and especially because it's, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's coming from such a, a less than credible set of sources. Uh, but he will. Uh, and, and then I, I think the, the less we're talking about anyone but the voters, the, the better, because at the end of the day, that's still what this is about. And I just don't think, you know, I think you're right that they want this to be Hillary's emails all over again. But um, Donald Trump is the president of the United States. We're living through one of the top mass casualty events in U.S. history. 
and the stakes are so high that I just don't think that kind of noise machine is going to have the same usefulness to the Trump campaign today as it did four years ago. Well, let's talk about what the president did over the weekend. He was in Michigan and he was in Wisconsin. In Michigan, he led a lock her up chant um, aimed at the Democratic governor of Michigan, Gretchen Whitmer. And then he comes to Wisconsin where he says that the, we, the Democratic governor here should open up the state, that we're turning the corner. Um, and, and he really does seem completely invested before we get back to the Gretchen Whitmer, uh, story and the the encouragement of of violence. Um, he seems completely invested in convincing people that we have turned the corner, that we're winning, if not having beaten the coronavirus, which is really extraordinary in terms of the cognitive dissonance of watching the numbers here in the Midwest right now. It's absolutely bizarre, especially in Wisconsin, which, as you know, is is uh, struggling with the spike in cases. And and I think the the really uh, striking thing here is he wants it to sound like the lockdowns are happening uh, because of Democrats, and refuses to acknowledge that the lockdowns are happening because he does not have control of this. Uh, because on his watch, uh, America has lost control of this. You know, lockdowns uh, are required most in places that are. Uh, struggling with, with with the caseloads rising, and that's exactly what happened. What's happening? We're not turning the corner; it's getting worse, and it doesn't have to be. That's the most important thing to get across. It doesn't have to be this way. We can do better. We will do better when we have better leadership. And uh, he, he almost seems to uh, want us to think that the problem is the lockdown designed to save lives from the virus, rather than that the problem is the virus. In Michigan, uh, let's go back to the Gretchen Whitmer uh, story. It was just a few days ago that we found out that uh, there had been a plot to kidnap and possibly murder her. He appears to be completely unfazed by that. And certainly at the at, at the rally where he's leading the locker up chant. Another one of these moments where he, he feels like he's trying to replay the greatest hits of 2016. How concerned should we be about this kind of rhetoric when we're seeing the way it's playing out? in places like Michigan and in Virginia. Look, this is not a guy who worries much about the consequences of his words and actions, but we should. Uh, you know, we, we've had uh, problems with extremist groups in this country for a long time, but what's new is for them to feel like they're getting encouragement from the highest office in the land. I and mean, let's be really clear, we're talking about a uh, an organized terrorist uh, plot against a sitting governor of a Midwestern state. And the president uh, seems to have no compunction at all about encouraging it. So yeah, words have consequences, especially when those words are spoken through the the biggest megaphone in America. And uh, yet I also think this is one more opportunity for people to come together. You know, as you see, maybe uh, the, the coalition behind Joe Biden uh, doesn't all agree with each other on absolutely everything. Our party's a big tent. We've got a lot of independents. We've got a lot of Republicans in this coalition. Um, but, you know, you don't have to be a Democrat to think there's something outrageously wrong with encouraging uh, extremist groups that, in this case, have been uh, taken down and caught in an uh, attempt to commit violence against, against the sitting governor. It's one more example of how this president has gotten so out of touch, not only with, with, with Democrats or centrists, but uh, with I, what, what I think of as, as the values of a Republican Party that uh, <laughs> that believes in keeping the peace and uh, is as horrified or ought to be as horrified by uh, this kind of domestic terrorist uh, uh, would be attack as, as anybody in the country would be. Well, we're 15 days off from the election, and I think that Donald Trump is losing this election. We know what the national numbers are, nine, nine, ten points. And yet 
it is still competitive in these swing states. It is still within the margin of error in some of the states that could determine the outcome of the Electoral College. So at this point, with everything we're seeing, everything we know, everything that's at stake, why is this race still so close in the states that matter, do you think? You know, I think a lot of it is a feature of the system that, that we have that turns this into one state at a time and makes it into a game of inches. You know, personally, I, I think it would make more sense for us to uh, just uh, have everyone's vote count the same as each other. But uh, that, that's a, a structural debate we can have another day. I mean, I think, you know, right now we're we're in the system that we're in. And, and I also think that, you know, my party in the past has not always done as good a job as we could have of, of, of connecting in places that. Uh, very much used to be our base, and I think can be again if we do the work. And I think we're we're doing the work now. Um, but you know that's part of why you're seeing uh, so so much activity. You're seeing the the uh, the campaign on the ground. You're seeing me on the ground, right in places like Michigan, Wisconsin, uh, speaking to folks who maybe just haven't heard that message in in the right way in a long time. But uh, the message I think will land because there's there's so much on the line. And uh, you know, as you say, I mean, the the, the president's losing right now, but that is no guarantee. We got to make sure that we get every vote out. And to me, there's two kinds of voters right now that, that we got to focus on. There's people still deciding how to vote and uh, including a lot of people who grew up Republican. They've always voted that way. It's the same thing as being respectable in, in, in their worlds or in their tradition. But they see now that this president does not represent the Republican Party they came up in. And then there's a equally large group I'm worried about, maybe a bigger group that, that uh, isn't deciding how, how to vote. They're deciding whether to vote. Mm -hmm. They're so frustrated or disaffected by the system that they're wondering whether it's worth the trouble. And we've got to urge folks to realize that you know, their moment of maximum power, uh, all those things you're frustrated about, the one chance you have to do something about it that uh, the system really does have to listen to is, is, is the moment you fill in that ballot, hopefully early. Is that what you're most worried about in this election right now? Again, when when in certain states or areas it comes down to a game of inches, then then yeah, that that's absolutely a worry. We got to make sure, and you know that's the downside of the extent to which uh, Joe Biden seems to be pulling ahead. I mean, opening up in a double-digit national lead is exciting news. But uh, you know, if, if there's anything we ought to have learned from 2016, uh, it's the dangers of believing that uh, the odds are so on your side that not everybody thinks it's. Uh, it's necessary to go vote, to stand in line, to go to the trouble. And uh, we, we've just got to make sure all uh, all of our voters are doing that. So we're talking on Monday. Um, it appears that on by Thursday, on Thursday, the Senate Judiciary Committee is going to advance the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court, and she'll be confirmed before the election. In, in a normal world, this would be the consuming number one issue. It doesn't it doesn't feel that way. But talk to me about the way, because you've talked about this extensively, the way the Supreme Court, this fight over the Supreme Court, how, how this is playing out in, in, the, in the campaign right now. Well, I think it's, it's on people's minds in, in a couple of ways. Part of it's the process thing. Most Americans believe that, uh, that the seat ought to be filled by the winner of the next election. And it, it looks like the uh, Senate's not going to allow that to happen. Uh, part of it's over the substance of, of, of what's at stake here, right? Uh, the, the fact that, that uh, health care could be taken away from a lot of people, the fact that, uh, you know, people like me, whose, whose marriages only exist by the grace of a single vote margin on that Supreme Court, worry about what this means for us. And so I, I think it is up close and personal, but you're right in the national emergency and the sort of political emergency we're living through, uh, even though you would think this would be number one on everybody's minds, it, it already feels in, in 
some media spaces, uh, they're talking about it like it's old news. And, and yet the, the Democrats have shown us a certain amount of, and I'm, I'm a little surprised, a mess of discipline in going after her by focusing on the issue of health care. Um, I think it would have been a big mistake to have gone after uh, religion. But this is this is a case that's going to be heard the week after the election that would throw out the entire Affordable Care Act. And I, I find it interesting that the Republicans are saying, well, no one actually wants to do that, except that is literally what they are trying to do and what the administration's position is before the Supreme Court. Right. I mean, not only that, but but they still have yet to articulate what they would replace it with. Remember, uh, the GOP has now had more than a decade after after chanting repeal and, and replace more than a decade to reveal to the American people what they're going to replace it with. The president uh, has been president for almost four years and has yet to deliver an alternative. He keeps saying it's going to be ready in two weeks. I think he's been saying two weeks for about four years. So uh, it, it reveals, of course, that there is no plan. And, and this is not theoretical. There are millions of Americans whose health care depends on this, including relatives of mine right, right here in Michigan, who uh, are, by the way, exactly the kind of people that this president claims to speak to. A lot of times, uh, self-employed people, small business owners, mom and pop type operations, not to mention uh, people who are relying on, on the Medicaid expansion. And if this thing gets thrown out, uh, and they've had 10 years to come up with an alternative and haven't been able to do it. You know, th- this is part of why I believe there was that big thumbs down from John McCain when they tried to do it on the floor of the Senate. Uh, now they're trying to do it in courts instead. Uh, the, the very folks who used to claim fidelity to the idea that you don't legislate from the bench. And here we are. This is uh, a real emergency for a lot of Americans. And it's part of why. And you're right. We, we're not always uh, on our uh, message as a party because uh, we got so many ideas and so many voices. But right now we are laser focused on preserving and protecting and expanding Americans' health care because uh, we know this policy worked. This policy, by the way, which which uh, the Affordable Care Act, which had its origins in, in conservative circles and then was, was adopted by Democrats, opposed by Republicans because it was adopted by Democrats, implemented. It wasn't perfect, but it's worked. Uh, and the agenda to take that away is one of the most destructive things about today's politics. So should congressional Democrats cut a deal with the Trump administration um, on the issue of coronavirus relief? Nancy Pelosi saying that tomorrow is the deadline to cut a deal, which seems it, it's it seems remote at this point. But but what would you recommend the congressional Democrats do? Cut a deal, not cut a deal, hold firm? I would love to see uh, a deal emerge. And uh, I know that that's what they're trying to negotiate. But I, I think they're also struggling with the incoherence of the other side of the table. When you got a president who doesn't seem to be for the, the deal, remember the, the House already passed the package I and mean, I think is a really great package. The Senate could vote on it tomorrow and we'd have it. Um, but, uh, uh, but they're holding out. Then the president says no negotiations, but we don't know whether that's, uh, uh, you know, that was a, a consequence of him just being in a certain kind of mood while, while he was medicated or if that was a policy decision. Then he comes around, says, uh, uh, go big or go home, which is kind of weird because big is our position and smaller is their position. So we, we really can't even tell if the president and the Senate GOP agree with each other. And it's really hard to get them to agree with us if we don't know if they agree with each other. Do I hope we get something? Absolutely. Um, but my optimism that it's going to happen is uh, is unfortunately fading each passing day. So what are you up to? What are you doing right now? Um, you're, you're campaigning around the Midwest, and you have also been one of the few Biden surrogates who's gone on Fox News. So tell me about this, your, your thinking of people to judge going on Fox News in this particular political environment. 
So to me, it's all about reaching people who might not hear our message otherwise. You know, we, we complain a lot and, and, and rightfully so, I think, uh, about opinion media. Uh, but, uh, you know, you, you go on a, a TV network that has a strong ideological position because you, you want to challenge it. You want to challenge viewers to, to think a little bit differently. And I know, I, uh, frankly, I don't always believe uh, those opinion hosts are, are speaking in good faith. But I know that there are a lot of viewers who tune in on good faith. Uh, in good faith, and and I want to make sure I reach them. How can I be mad at somebody for not understanding my message if they've literally never heard it? And how are they supposed to hear it if we don't go on there? So uh, I'm going to take every opportunity uh, that I can get to to uh, go on on networks like Fox News, Fox News, on uh, into other places that maybe aren't as used to hearing Democrats. I'll, I'll go preach to the choir too, mostly in order to you know cheer on the folks who who are going to be volunteers and voters and uh, and contributors and an important part of our coalition. But shame on us if we're just preaching to the converted all the time. Uh, and and uh, I see real opportunity there. So I'm going to be on the ground as much as we safely can. As you know, uh, the Biden-Harris campaign, I think, is more uh, attentive to and, and concerned about uh, safety than the uh, uh, than the Trump-Pence campaign. But, but that's not going to stop us from doing uh, safe in-person events like the ones I'm doing today. We're going to be at a brewery in Grand, Grand Rapids. We're going to be at a, a, a rural uh, area and a farm in, in Stockbridge. We're going to be rallying supporters in Kalamazoo. We're, we're getting around in our way. Um, but also when there's a way to do it online, when there's a way to do it on TV, uh, I'm going to be there because, again, uh, I want to speak to people deciding whether to vote. And I definitely want to speak to those people still deciding how to vote and let them know it's OK to change your mind if you voted one way in 16 for any number of reasons. Maybe because you didn't like the alternative, maybe because you were mad at the system, maybe because uh, you, you didn't think it would actually win, but you want to just send a message. Whatever the reasoning was then, this is now and we're in trouble as a country. we got to come together. And, uh, you know, I'm. I'm the thing that gives me the most hope is to see how big of a coalition. I mean, to have former chairs of the Republican National Committee uh, standing along mm. people, alongside people like me, endorsing a Democratic candidate, tells you that in our polarized partisan moment, for once, this might not be about partisanship, and that just might be a, a healthy beginning for what the 2020s are going to have to become for our country to get to a better place than we're in. So the, the nickname Slayer Pete is, is also a, a, a way of, of acknowledging that you've become kind of one of the stars of the campaign, that you're one of the highest profile surrogates out there and you're more visible than some people who you would expect to be more visible. So it, what what is your future look like? What do you want to be when you grow up, Mayor Pete? <laughs> Uh, you know, I, I want to be useful. And uh, I thought there was a way to do that by becoming the nominee and the president. I will support uh, his presidency should uh, God willing, should he win. And, you know, whether I get to do that by returning to public service or whether I'm doing that in some other way from the outside, uh, there are uh, uh, that will uh, very literally be above my pay grade. But yeah. uh, what I know is uh, I got a chance to do some good. and I'm going to keep looking for, for chances to do the same. That was exactly the answer that I was expecting, but I figured I had to ask you anyway. You <laughs> Fair know, enough. I mean, would you be interested in a position in the cabinet? Are you thinking of elected of course. office? Do you, uh, do you anticipate uh, yeah. running for president again? I don't know. You know, every time I made a decision to run for any office, including president, it's it's been sizing up the moment, looking at what the office called for, looking at what I had to bring that maybe was different from the others and, and seeing a match. And you know, if I, I see that match again in in uh, an opportunity to run for office, then I'll run. But I've followed that same process a lot of times in a decision not to run. Uh, I, I don't believe in running for an office because you'd like to have it. Uh, I think you run for an office because you think it's the best way to meet the moment. And if the best way to meet the moment is to not run for office, so much the better. Uh, but one way or the other, I'm, I'm going to be out there trying to do some good.
You know, one thing that strikes me in, 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 in retrospect, um, you really got screwed over in Iowa. I'm sorry. And, and yet, you and you, yes, I do. And I, I think you probably do as well. <laughs> but in contrast to certain other very prominent people in American politics, I have not heard a lot of complaining from you about that. You have been able to move past that in a way that I think certain other people, I think, would have had a very, very difficult time. And also reminding us about the way technology can bite us in the ass going into this election. I, I, I keep thinking about the, the problem with the apps there and the kind of warning that it might have for other elections. Is that a legitimate connection or? Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, what, what it reminded us of is that, uh, you know, our, our system isn't perfect and we've got a lot of work to do to, to shore it up, to make sure it has integrity. And, and, uh, and I'm, I'm not questioning anything about the outcome, but, uh, I mean, why would I, we, we won, right. <laughs> but, um, but obviously that, that was a process that, that, uh, caused a lot of problems, especially for, for me and my campaign. But I also think it, it, I'm hoping it gives me a little bit of standing to make sure we beat back uh, false uh, accusations about the system. Uh, I'm very worried about losers of elections in a couple of weeks, uh, trying to stir up illegitimate doubt uh, about processes. And, and so part of what I'm going to be out there doing is preparing people. You know, look, if there's voter suppression or, or uh, pro other problems, we're, we're absolutely going to uh, uh, flag that and, and talk about it and fight that. But uh, I think it's also important for me to say, as somebody who knows as much as any person in America, how frustrating it is uh, to not get the results uh, on the day of, in, in, in our case because of a problem. Mayor Pete Buttigieg, thank you so much for joining us on the Bulwark podcast today. We appreciate it very much. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Nice being with you. Take care. Uh, OK, thanks a lot. Hey, we're very grateful for Mayor Pete's time. Hey, a quick reminder for those of you that have not yet subscribed to Bulwark Plus. Um, we, we are hoping that you will join us today. Mark the first day that we have uh, limited my morning newsletter, morning shots to the subscribers to Bulwark uh, Plus. Uh, we don't want to exclude anyone. Uh, here's the deal. We don't have advertising. We don't have pop-ups. We are not owned by a billionaire philanthropist. So we rely on the kindness of stranger and the support of savvy folks like you. Uh, this podcast is going to remain free. The main site is going to remain free. But if you join Bulwark Plus, you will have access to all of our newsletters, including JVL's newsletter uh, in the, comes out in the middle of the day, uh, and a number of other podcasts, including The Next Level, The Secret Podcast, and our weekly live streams. We will have a, we will have a live stream after this Thursday night's debate and election night, the entire Bulwark team is going to be available for the whole night. We're going to be working in shifts. doesn't mean you need to watch us the whole time or listen the whole time, but you can drop in and it will sort of be a watch party. And uh, that's one of the reasons, that's one of the many reasons why we hope that you join Bulwark Plus. So as the second part of our Double Barrel Monday Bulwark podcast, so we're joined by A.B. Stoddard, who's got a great piece up on Real Clear Politics of the 10 known unknowns, <laughs> or is it unknown knowns? No, it's 10 known unknowns of the 2020 election. You, you do this every every election year, right? This it's is an, the, an, this interesting is to look back on because the issues unknowns. always change. I think in the age of Trump, Charlie, we've really you know, lost our, I mean, we have severe brain damage and we've lost our ability to remember anything, but there was so much violence before the midterm elections. Um, it wasn't just the caravan. It was, you know, 
slaughtered a synagogue and that guy sending, you know, bombs to the Clintons and all these members of the media. And it was just, it's just so interesting to look back at, at each, you know, kind of preview before, you know, two years back, two years back. And it is, it seems like everything stays the same, but it's actually really different. I mean, immigration is not even on the radar right now. Isn't that something? You know, I, I'm, I'm not sure who it was who said this. Maybe it was Chuck Todd. I'm not sure. But in 2016, Trump's campaign was about giving voice to the grievances of the forgotten Americans. This year, it's all about Completely. Trump giving voice to his own grievances. It, it is. It is. Kind of, no, it's really kind of interesting. All the things that that you would have thought would have been at the top of the agenda are not at the top of the agenda. They're not even being talked about. Hey, so before we get into these 10 um, these 10 things, uh, John Cornyn of Texas uh, seems to be the latest Republican sort of gently kind of distancing himself from Trump. Yeah, so um, I've been watching Texas, um, like all of us, uh, with fascination ever since I was at uh, a monitor, Christian Science Monitor Breakfast with Ted Cruz early in 2019. And he said that Texas would be, quote, hotly contested. And though he believes Senator Cornyn and President Trump could win it, they couldn't take it for granted. And it was going to be a real fight. And I've you know, watched ever since seeing the Republican Party there panic. Senator Cornyn's standing with the voters in Texas is a little bit different than Senator Cruz, who only won by 2.6 percentage points in 2018. He has sort of a little bit of a broader coalition. But that said, it is a presidential year now, and Democrats are building on the gains they made in the midterms there. Senator Cornyn has not only been at this a long time, he's actually run the senatorial committee and knows... Um, you know, at an expert level uh, when things um, uh, are becoming problematic. And I just do believe it's a, it's a cry for help and, and it has to do with what he's seeing on the ground or he wouldn't have done it. It was so um, ham-fisted and pathetic. And I think that he did it because um, he's trying, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a Hail Mary. It, it, it felt that way. And it, I mean, so his direct quote was, well, not the 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 report was that he that he disagreed with President Trump on issues like budget deficits and debt, tariffs and trade agreements and border security, but he kept all of these disagreements private rather than publicly voicing his opposition because we wouldn't want a U.S. senator actually publicly disagreeing with the president. And then he made that weird analogy to it's like a woman marrying a man hoping that she can change him and then finds out she can't, which was kind of a cringeworthy sort of thing. But you're, I, I, I had the same take that you had on this, that he must be looking at something in the polls to think that, that this would be the moment to put a, you know, an arm's length between himself, because you would normally think that it's way too late for John Cornyn to uh, take the off ramp here, like, like, the other, like the other Republican senators who had you know, one chance after another to get off and they didn't take it. So now what, two weeks before the election? With uh, the president down by nine or 10 points, now suddenly he's going, hey, by the way, I probably should mention that at least in yeah, private, and, and, and the thing is, I've is been a good Senator guy. Senator Cornyn can still win that election, but and so can S Senator Graham in sure. South Carolina, but it would be foolish to say that they're not in danger. They see what is going on in the money race. They see what's going on on the ground in Georgia and Texas with early voting and 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 you know, in the case of, of Senator Graham, he has someone who is Jim Clyburn, floor director. Um, you know, Jim Clyburn has his hands on the, the Democratic machine across the state of, of South Carolina and helped 
uh, Joe Biden become the Democratic Party nominee. And so these are real threats. You know, what Beto O'Rourke has continued to work on in Texas since the midterms from all the way down ballot to the presidential level to try to get voter out is is a serious threat for John Cornyn. And and again, I, he's a dignified man. And, and it, it would have, I imagine, taken a lot for him to come out with that thing about being a um, subjugated wife. Yeah, the subjugated wife. Uh, the the story that continues to absolutely blow me away is this green tsunami, the, the all of the Democratic money that's pouring in. If we were sitting down on January 1st of this year thinking about what would be what issues you know, what would be going on in, in, in late October, I'm guessing that very few people would have said, yeah, the Democrats are going to have a problem because they'll have so much money that they won't know how to spend it. And they will be outspending the Republicans and the Trump campaign in particular, two to one, three to one in some of the battleground states. This is how, do, how does that so even so crazy to me that when I was looking back it is so to crazy. check on the post Ruth Bader Ginsburg um, uh, hall uh, after she died, the hall that Act Blue raised, and to, to just try to ponder three hundred million dollars in one week is so crazy, and. As you said, they they don't they literally don't know how to spend it. I can remember being at the RNC a year ago or so, and listening to their astonishing uh, money and ground game advantage. The details, the depth, how long they've been at it. They were carpet bombing Facebook. They're raising money even in impeachment, hand over fist. Everything was gangbusters, and there was no way. At that point, we didn't know who the nominee would be. Any Democratic nominee could catch up. The DNC was dysfunctional. Obama had left it in tatters. They had four years after Hillary lost to get their act together, and they couldn't. They were way behind Republicans in fundraising. You know, Trump had all the enthusiasm and all the big fat cats in his pocket. And this just was no way after a long fought primary, the Democrats were going to be able to catch up so late in the game to what was essentially a four-year general election campaign run by the RNC, the Trump campaign, and the Trump-aligned super PACs. There was just going to be no way. And to see the just absolutely perverted amount of money that has been pummeling uh, the coffers of the Democrats, uh, I, I was making a presentation on Friday. I said the news out this morning is that the Democratic um, senatorial committees and, and PACs and candidates have outraised Republicans by $194 million in Q3. And I said, to repeat, they did not raise $194 million. They outspent them by $194 million. Just nuts. It is, and especially because, as you point out, the Republicans had the famed Death Star. That that's going to be one of the great phrases when people look back on the twenty twenty election. Brad Parscale on on the way out before he was uh, he was drop kicked, describing the the Death Star. Uh, I'm I'm really looking forward to it's kind of wonky insider stuff, but I'm looking forward to reading the story about yeah. how the Death Star exploded. I, I want to just get some sense. How did you piss through a billion dollars? How did how did you squander that kind of of, of a lead? Um, you know, in part, I mean, one one theory that I have sort of in the back of my mind that I can't I can't quantify is that the Republicans got 
you know, in, to a certain extent, got a little bit lazy because they were depending on a few big donors that they believed that the the model of fundraising was you go to Sheldon Adelson, get on your knees and have him write out a check for 50 million dollars. You go to somebody else, you know, um, uh, you know, somebody like you know, a Uline or somebody um, or whatever. I mean, you know, name <laughs> name an oligarch. Uh, and whereas the Democrats really did create this this amazing grassroots machine, which I have to say that I yeah, certainly and didn't see. Coming. What actually surprises me is that the donors and the Republicans, to their credit, they did have a lot of grassroots small donations, nothing like um, Act Blue, but um, when things, you know, in happy times, sort of pre-pandemic disaster. Um but the donors who have loyally yeah, given yeah, yeah. And, and really had their doubts about where the money was going and Kimber- Kimberly Guilfoyle's monthly checks and w- how Brad was uh, taking care of, you know, allies around uh, the family to keep uh, his job and how much money he was personally spending, you know, on his own yachts and cars and houses and everything. There's been a lot of talk and a lot of tension that behind closed doors, and I'm really surprised that they're actually still quiet and waiting until after the election to get upset in public, uh, because it's a grifter operation, and and a lot of them know that. And you know, when we find the receipts for how many campaign dollars went into you know events at Mar-a-Lago and the Trump International Hotel and all this stuff, it's you know, people are, uh, there's going to be a postmortem on this. Um, and, and again, I just am surprised with the pictures of Brad Parscale being, you know, carted into a police car and everything that people haven't, um, done a bunch of at least anonymous leaking about it yet. Oh, I, I, I think that tsunami is coming. So there, there are two developments over the weekend that strike me as, 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 as awfully interesting as we're going into the final two weeks of the campaign um, other people have written about them and talked about them. The the the, the president uh, all in on his rallies, which of course is his safe space, his his comfort space, but they don't seem to be working for him. He came to Janesville, Wisconsin, over the weekend, and one of the big stories that came out of that, of course, was the fact that Wisconsin is experiencing a, a really, since I'm here in Wisconsin, kind of a horrific spike in the coronavirus, and there he has one of his spreader events. Uh, he goes to Michigan, and people are talking about how he led the crowd and in the chance of lock her up. This attack on Gretchen Whitmer just a short time after this plot was exposed uh, to kidnap her and 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 murder her. So it 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 does feel as if the president is 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 is, is talking, you know, throwing this red meat to the base in a way that is almost designed to alienate the kinds of voters he's going to need? Or are we all missing something? Yeah. So I think what the president tends to believe is that when he goes to these events, the the um, already firm supporters who attend them go home and in, in, in just a fit of exuberance and passion manage to grab like 14 new unregistered voters and move the numbers on the ground for him. Yeah. Um, they, they buy merch and they scream and yell and they love him and they tell him at the top of their lungs that they love him and they laugh at his ridiculous jokes about how beautiful he is. But I don't know that they're actually really moving the ground operation for him following the events. And so right. at these events, <clears throat> where he needs to go through his grievances, show that he rebounded from 
the coronavirus and his Superman, you know, do his sort of, I think in some ways it's like a really strange sort of subliminal, you know, farewell tour. Let's bring Hope Hicks up and, you know, clap for her and, and all this stuff. Um, he has been forced, as you've noticed, to read off some teleprompter, some, some remarks that um, are uh, sorry about the loss of lives to coronavirus and uh, focused sort of policy differences with Joe Biden. But then he goes on the riffs and, and overshadows it all. And so there was a wonderful tweet. I wish I had it in front of me from Chuck Grassley last week that people um, for a good kick should look up where he just said, um, if someone could tell the president that if he could have note cards and just for the first, just for five things that he would, he's done and could do differently <laughs> than Biden, because, you know, when, once he goes off message and drowns out, out whatever the message was intended uh, and just starts just attacking Gretchen Whitmer over and over again so that, you know, Republicans have to be asked about that in the last 15 days um, is obviously of deep concern to them as they're looking at the polling. But at the same time, as we've said for four years, they're entirely aware that they're powerless to stop it or to try to get him to focus on the voter instead of himself. Well, and the other thing is, and maybe it, it's too it's too soon to tell, but it seems that he thinks he's going to have a replay of 2016, uh, the Hillary email uh, attacks, by going after the the Hunter Biden laptop and that New York Post story, and he's obsessed with that. And that, of course, is all Fox News is talking about going after the the Biden crime family. It feels like it's not landing right now. I mean, there's no evidence so far that it's working. They are all in on that. So give me your take on this last minute throw everything. I mean, everything at at the Bidens, which, again, is also means that he's not going to be talking about the economy. He's not going to be talking about uh, health care. He's not going to be talking about uh, morning in America. It, it's all about, you know, Q-tinged conspiracy theories involving yeah, so Joe Biden. I, I agree with you. I think it is a it's a good last minute fixation and distraction against, you know, for, for the base uh, uh, and, and Trump world and Trump allies um, to, you know, to to convince themselves and busy themselves with um, to, to a, sort of get the conversation off of President Trump, you know, saying crazy things about the virus and whatever it's. It, so they're sort of fiendishly focused on it, even though we've had this devastating reporting from the New York Times about what went on at the New York Post before they published it. And they actually yeah. basically lied in the piece and said that um, Vice President Joe Biden had been, um, uh, you know, leading this international coalition to dump the prosecutor general Shokin because he was investigating Burisma. And we, we know those of us who have followed all along that it was the exact opposite and that Vice President Biden was leading this coalition to get him fired because he was not investigating corruption. And had he investigated Burisma, it would have been uh, problematic for Burisma. But um, the other matter is really that, um, you know, that that Rudy Giuliani has been working with Russian agents and we now have a bunch of reporting. Um, this has gone on for years, but that our government has been warning the White House about it. So there's way too much to drown out the excitement of the story. And they're really, really um, not only playing with fire, talking about child pornography, just really terrible stuff that um, politicians shouldn't be discussing and it should come from law enforcement if it's real. But on the other hand, it's laughable, as I said on Fox last week uh, to a few interruptions, 
Ivanka and Jared have made $358 million in the last four years on staff at the White House. Children of presidents get to make a lot of money doing nothing. It's greasy nepotism and it's wrong, but it's absolutely legal and it's been allowed all along. And the Trumps have taken it to new heights. I'm not even going to bring up the conflicts from the Trump org and what's going on with Don Jr. and Eric and the business and the president. Just these two top White House senior advisors or whatever their names are, their titles are, have gone just pillaging. She's had 23 trademarks with the Chinese government for coffins (laughs) and voting machines and nobody cares. So now they're going to get really upset about Hunter Biden's laptop. Well, you know, it, it is interesting how it plays out, though, um, in for, for Trump world. There's there's a there's a guy here in Wisconsin who's a pretty, pretty, I mean, you know, in, intelligent, conservative Republican guy who I think has been very, very Trump skeptical and has been sort of going back and forth. You know, can I vote for you know, hold my nose and vote for Trump again? And he direct messaged me over the weekend and said this this Hunter stuff, um, <laughs> this changes everything now, doesn't it? Because I said, I said, I said, in what way? And he goes, well, because now they are both corrupt. So you, you take this entire universe, we spend four years documenting the grifting and the cacocracy, right. how do you pronounce that, cacostocracy of the, of the, of the Trump uh, re- re- regime. And at least in Trump world, all they do is just throw out, well, Biden's corrupt, Biden's corrupt, and it neutralizes, it creates the whataboutism. So, that, you know, and that's, and that's it. Oh, so one little, uh, little uh, Reince Priebus drop here. So uh, Reince Priebus, former chief of staff, Wisconsin guy, uh, chairman of the RNC, was on uh, one of the shows over the weekend saying that he thinks that the president is going to be much more restrained at the debate this week, <clears throat> that, that, that he's going he's gonna to let Joe Biden have more time to explain himself, that he's going to you know, be more. And, and, I, and I watched that and I thought, you know what? Reince is trying to send a message to the president. He's not reporting a reality that exists in the world. He's using his television interview to send a signal like, Mr. President, could you please not be so crazy? Could you not be a bore? But it, it, it's not it's not an expression right. of what's actually going it's, on. You know what I mean? here? It's, just, it's the how, how to watch certain pundits. Certain pundits will tell you what they think is happening. Other pundits will tell you what they want and will pretend that that's what's happening. And I think that Reince would be in that second category. The interesting thing about Trump having that town hall at NBC was um, much to the relief of his allies. He appeared calmer. But whether it's um, in a debate setting or in a tough interview from a non-friendly interviewer, um, the president, when he gets defensive, goes on offense. And so while he will be coached every day of this week to give Biden more time to stumble all over the place, get something wrong, look like he's out of it, when questions come to him at the debate on his own record, he will feel defensive and immediately turn it into offense. And that is the only channel he he stays on. He, he simply will not be able to make it through the debate without going on offense and attacking Biden. No, and this is the safest bet here because this is a guy who is who he is. He's not going to pivot. There's not going to be a new Trump. There's not going to be a modified Trump. He's going to be throwing out the laptop. He's going to be doing the usual sort of thing. And, of course, they will also goad him. Okay, so let's go back to where we started here. Um, Your piece, 
uh, about the the unknown knowns um, or the known unknowns. So this is an homage from to you know former Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld, who talked about the the known unknowns, which are the factors that you know are going to affect the outcome. You don't you just don't know how much. So let's walk through the ten. So you you start with the pandemic coronavirus. It's just so much more of an issue than obviously Trump will ever admit to himself, but the Republicans. Uh, have digested. And it is going to define our lives for a very long time. There will be no magical vaccine by November 3rd that brings us back to normal life. We're heading into a desperate time this winter, uh, hurtling towards 2,900 deaths per day. Uh, And the fact that Joe Biden continues to focus his message on this, and and the polling has consistently shown six in 10 Americans rejecting the federal response is really problematic for the president. Yeah, and we, we have a new story in the Washington Post, uh, which really does underline the amount of dysfunction that was going on inside that task force. Okay, so number two, known unknown, the health care issue, which played a major role in the 2018 campaign. And then what did the Republicans do about that electoral and political liability after the 2018 midterms? Nothing. <laughs> so as the case that the administration has joined goes to oral argument in the Supreme Court on November 10th that could potentially, if the case, if the suit prevails, dismantle the entire system and take 20 million people off the rolls. Um, this is an issue that worked for the Democrats two years ago, and you know they are using it on the ground. It's in Joe Biden's ads, and I think it's just a huge sleeper issue. We'll learn at the other side how much it mattered, but it will matter. Yeah, Kaiser Family Foundation poll out yesterday showed 79% of Americans want to keep protections for pre-existing conditions, 58% oppose overturning uh, Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act. Okay, so um, factor number three, age, which of course hangs over everything. The fact that we're living in an age where all of these, all of the candidates are really, really old. Yeah, I think it's really a problem for young people who um, came of age, you know, after 9-11 and have witnessed Trump and the disintegration of both parties, you know, the the breakdown of institutions, the degradation of social trust. Uh, they worry that the climate um, is, you know, we're, is an existential threat and they're not going to live to be grandparents. And they're looking at leaders and wondering why are they so old? And I include in there that Biden said the other day, he couldn't remember um, Senator Romney's name, who's been a senator and a governor and a presidential nominee and was the other, you know, was, was the, was the candidate they had to defeat in 2012. He goes, you know, the Mormon guy. And it's so interesting because I don't think that necessarily makes, if you're concerned about Biden's age, I don't know that it makes you vote for Trump, but, but it is a huge factor that, that, that we have a generation of kids coming up saying, is this really all you can do? This is all you can give us is like these two ancient white guys. And Biden certainly has his days where he doesn't make a lot of sense. Trump, on the other hand, has never given us a credible medical record. Um, he's made an emergency trip to Walter Reed. He slurs his words sometimes. I mean, it, it's not either one, uh, Charlie, uh, on election on, on on inauguration day would become the oldest to ever serve. Yeah, by a substantial amount. Uh, so women, um, these numbers, uh, again, are extraordinary. We've had gender gaps for as long as I can remember, but nothing like what we're seeing right now. 
Right. And women were the engine behind the midterm elections. They've powered the resistance. They've run for office in record numbers, raised money in record numbers, organized and volunteer in record numbers. They've left the Republican Party in large amounts. Even non-college uh, uh, women, um, uh, white women, are, 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 there's been an erosion in the Trump coalition uh, uh, defections from them. And it will be fascinating to learn. They were 52% of the electorate in 2018. It'll be fascinating to learn um, what, what they did in this election on the other side. Okay, uh, factor number five, this is the one that I think is most fascinating, the fact that we're sitting having this conversation on October 19th, when Amy Coney Barrett is going to be confirmed in, what, three days to take Ruth Bader Ginsburg's seat. And it feels like background noise, which, again, that would never have been on your dance card, that this would not be the consuming issue. But uh, number five, the issue of of the courts. How is yeah, that? Just amazing. I mean, yeah. she, this was supposed to be the most unbelievable Shakespearean drama, yep, the end yep. of this campaign mm-hmm. and these four years. There's no evidence it has raised money for Republicans. Juice turnout on the ground, excited uh, people on the campaign trail. The lawmakers themselves are willing to lose the White House and or the Senate majority to get a six seat because it's that important to them. They've remade the courts with 200 or more lower case, uh, lower court um, confirmations. It's an incredible record for Mitch McConnell and for President Trump and part of the glue that holds the coalition together. But we absolutely do not know at this point that will help Republicans and it's probably going to help Biden. You have a line that's interesting. Some Republicans believe that adding a sixth conservative justice days before the election could help Biden win. Yeah. And to many of them, it will be worth it. Yeah, they've told me that in private Um, in the past and with with Kavanaugh and before the 2018 midterms that the court lasts longer and then and then the next election. And they need the court to be conservative because there's not one demographic trend in the country helping Republicans. Every single demographic trend in this country goes against their uh, shrinking coalition of largely middle aged to senior white men. Um, They don't have enough young voters, female voters or non-white voters. And remaking the court is job number one, and they are willing to lose in the near term for it. Okay. Um, Number six, known unknown message you write. In 2016, Trump had the message. Clinton didn't, and it mattered. Doesn't feel that way this time around. Yeah, I basically go through how they've spent a billion dollars and voters wouldn't be able to discern what his message is today. Sleepy Socialist Joe is going to bring housing projects to your suburbs is about where it is. I don't know. Yeah. It's breaking through. Uh, number seven, the economy. Now, this is one of the, the the areas where in a lot of the polls, President Trump retains an edge. And of course, uh, we're old enough to remember when it's the economy, stupid. But that's not the case anymore, is it? The, the stunning thing is in the last month to see polls where a majority of voters say they are better off than they were four years ago. Yeah. And then in the same polling will not give a majority to Trump and Biden is ahead of him, which means they're focused more on the direction of the country. And and we're really in economic trouble in this pandemic. And we don't know what's around the corner. It could get much worse. So it's unprecedented for an incumbent retaining that advantage to be behind. Okay, number eight, though, we've talked about this before, persuasion versus mobilization. It does feel like the Trump campaign has given up on persuasion, and it's all about ginning up the base. But, but your number nine is the one that I wanted to focus on, the known unknown. Mail-in ballots, this surge of balloting is unprecedented. It is extraordinary, but it also raises questions about um, will there be problems? Might this be a factor that we don't fully understand? 
will there be a disproportionate number of Democratic votes that are wasted or scrapped because of mail-in balloting? So give me your take on that. Right. So everyone's been talking about the red mirage that Republicans vote on Election Day. It looks really great for Trump on Election Night. And then the blue shift comes when the mail-in ballots come in for Biden. So we've seen for months that that's what the two parties voters plan. Those were the ways they plan to vote. Now we see all this early voting on the ground. Democrats are hoping that they've front loaded enough vote that if there's, you know, there might be like a decisive win in Florida for Biden on election night and be able to stop the idea, you know, the the idea of sort of giving oxygen to Trump contesting the election. Uh, But it is again, and I think we've talked about this before, Charlie, like it's really we're dependent on Republicans to stand up and defend the count. Uh, the next day in the key states. That, that's what we're dependent on, unless for some strange reason, and I doubt it, there's literally a decisive win for Biden in Florida and Ohio, Georgia, and Texas are too close to call, in which case the late counting Rust Belt states won't matter. But um, I, I, you know, I, I, I'm depending on everyone to be on their best behavior. And I think it's really good that a lot of Americans um, uh, understood that absentee ballots are actually really difficult to fill out 550,000 of them were disqualified in the primaries. That would cut definitely into Biden's count. And I guess they encourage their voters to get out and and vote um, in, in early in early voting. I, I'm going to mail mine in, but um, I don't want to stand in line um, next to other people. But um, it's going to be really fascinating to see after election officials permitted 75 percent or more of us for the first time ever to vote by mail, just how much That's it really amazing. ends up. Um, being significant to the to the final count and whether or not we have this, you know, explosion of contesting the outcome. So number 10 of the known unknowns, the Russians, which again, we're <laughs> in the middle of watching Russian disinformation and the act of collusion of Trump world with the Russians. And it feels like it's kind of the slow motion thing that we're trying to get our heads around. It's not it's not really even subtle at this point. So how, how will that play um, in this election? Yeah, I think what's um, David Sanger uh, of The New York Times has a documentary that he's worked on about just what the app failure in the Iowa Democratic primary did to um, freak everybody oh, out yeah. and how the Russians have really already succeeded, e- e- that they don't even have to tamper, that anything goes wrong, we believe that they've attacked the election. And so if you, they have changed their active measures and they are um, finding it's very easy to use people like Rudy Giuliani to do the work um, themselves. But uh, what the CIA and the NSA and the DHS and the Senate Intelligence Committee has learned over the last four years, in addition to what Special Counsel Mueller did, is scary just about how the Russians did target all 50 states, electoral systems. They didn't they, they applied some malware, but didn't, you know, activate it. Um, but there were some concerns about some counties in Florida. And, you know, we just desperately hope we don't learn on the other side that they were um, altering voter registration databases or anything that would affect the count. Um, that's just a nightmare that we is just too much to contemplate. You know, it, it, it's funny, purely randomly it was not something that I actually planned to, to do in, you know, in much in advance. But uh uh, over the weekend, I watched we watched that old Robin Williams movie, Man of the Year, 2006, where he's a comedian who is elected president. But it turns out he's only elected president because of a glitch in the com- national computer um, election system. And it's like, like I actually had to stop and go, what year was this? 2006. <laughs> and you go, oh, man, these nightmare scenarios. Um, first of all, how a showbiz guy could could, could you know, 
break into the political process, get elected, but that the whole election is completely bogus because of a glitch, not not a hack, a a glitch in the system. So um, people were worried about that nightmare scenario a long time ago. And 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 here we are. A.B. Stoddard, thank you so much for joining us on the Bulwark podcast again. We really appreciate it. And your piece is up at Real Clear Politics. Uh, always, always a good read. The 10 known unknowns of the election two weeks out. So thanks for coming back. Appreciate it. Always good to be with you, Charlie. Thank you. And thank you for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. There are just 15 days to go until the election. We'll be back tomorrow. We'll do this all over again.